Hello Queens, welcome to today's incredible SOS She Made It episode with Natalie Campbell, who is a CEO in her DNA. She's currently the co-CEO of Belly Water, which is the UK's most ethical water brand and you will have seen um, at the majority of restaurants. If you're a fan of Gales, you definitely would have seen them there. Natalie's career is incredibly inspiring. Uh, starting from her first CEO role at Morgan back in the day when she was just 20 years old um, through to now being on the boards of the big lottery fund, the London Mayor, um, co-hosting Badass Women's Hour. She has such incredible insights that she's going to share with us today and what I really took away from the conversation was Natalie's pure sense of leadership not just of any organization or team, but a leadership in the sense of seeing a world that she wants to live in and then working and doing everything she can to build it. I believe everyone has the potential to change the world and sometimes we can let our inner thoughts or our inner doubts get in the way. And what is most inspiring about Natalie is that she believes in herself and her incredible talents and she doesn't let anyone get in the way of that and I can't wait to share these insights with you and to share her story with you so take some time out for yourself get a cup of tea go for a walk and just tune in sending lots of love your way let's go for it hi Natalie welcome to SOS she made it I'm so excited to see you because we haven't seen each other for well, ages because obviously it's been a pandemic. So it's wonderful to see your face. But I'm also really excited because I get to interview you, which isn't something you'd necessarily do over drinks because it might be a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> the last time we saw each other was probably for drinks four, five years ago, maybe. You know, what? I actually don't know how we met. I just know that you're someone in my life that I really look up to and I just love... Um, having you just like in my network but I'm like I don't actually remember how we met I can't remember either just fabulous people being in the same (laughs) (laughs) totally I remember something to do with Virgin Media Pioneers which I think it was something to do with with that yeah um but welcome to SRS She Made It um so I've gone through your achievements which there are so many in the intro so before we kind of drill into your career let's just like rewind and tell me a little bit about your like early years your early stories so where you're from what your dreams were what you wanted to be when you grew up like talk me through like 10 year old Natalie's psyche or like your early years so I've been talking about this a lot recently and the more I talk about it the more I'm like am I was I normal? <laughs> but I, I, you know, I wanted to be a CEO at 15. I was absolutely obsessed with Puff Daddy and Bad Boy and So So Deaf and Rough Riders and that whole movement of um, CEOs running labels, but also sort of family units and everything that came with that and I resonated with the power they had, the freedom they had, the collective sense of um, awesomeness. And once I had that in mind, 
I went on a journey of being a CEO and originally it was within the music industry. So not many people know, but I applied for the Brit school and I got in and then I didn't turn up on the first day um, because my dad was convinced that there was no career in media. This was a big thing growing up. Um, so I didn't go, I went to sixth form instead. So I basically went back to my old school and sort of surprised my teachers mm-hmm. by saying, I'm here. Um, and instead my journey of entrepreneurship it it was almost influenced by this idea of being a CEO I didn't really know the term entrepreneurship but what I felt was that the need to to be in control to run my own business to create things sell them and then getting to university, I knew that some sort of business was in the offing and I looked at lots of different options and I did student club nights and it had a lot of fun testing out ideas and landed on Morgan, which was the high street clothing store. I ended up opening one of those in my last year and that really started the whole journey. And I realized that I didn't need to go through the graduate milk round, which was a thing that people did back then. I don't even know if it exists now. Um, I'm an old millennial. Um, I think it does. Okay. Um, but that idea of, you know, I, I get a graduate job and I stay in that career for five years and then potentially I move on to something else. It just didn't, it didn't work for me. And that idea of being an entrepreneur and going on my own path and my own journey really stemmed from what I saw then in that bad boy, so, so deaf world. So you've got your CEO inspiration from that. Yeah. I guess before we go into anything else, I think it's really, really important, um, especially as women, I, for, for us to have role models. So when you were, you know, a teenager and like Puff Daddy, who then became P. Diddy, was doing his thing, um, what in you, is, is there anything in your background, do you think it's just something you were born with? That there's there's nothing that said girls can't be CEOs or um, you know I've got to get a real job I can't be a leader like was there any of that going on or were you just like if Puff Daddy can do it I can do it that's got my name written on it let's go never um, and again this is one of the reasons why I say you know was I was I normal but I I think it's you know I I'm Jamaican I come from a family of if you want something you go for it you you go and get it my family are entrepreneurial um mm-hmm. and so the idea at, at, at no stage other than my dad not being particularly impressed with me going into the media industry there was there's never been anything that I've wanted to do within my life or career that he said no he's always supported it so when I opened the Morgan he drove up from London on a weekly basis to do the shop fit for me um even though I should have been studying. And, you know, there was never a kind of, well, are you going to finish your degree sort of thing? It was, well, if you want to open a shop, yeah, of course, okay, get, go for it. Um, and so, no, and I think role models are important. I think the challenge we have with role models now, and I don't know if I love the term so much, is that people are flawed. And I think we need to find a new way of respecting what people do or the art they create or the gift they give the world whilst recognizing that that person will equally make mistakes and they might say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And so let's not put them on a pedestal of perfection because that doesn't exist, but let's 
respect the thing, the gift they are giving the world. And actually maybe we're inspired by the output of who they are, not necessarily them as a person. Amen to that. That brings to mind, um, I think Lizzo did a juice cleanse and she got so much hate for doing a juice cleanse because she's supposed to be this icon of body positivity. And it's like, there's two very separate things, aren't they? That's the word, supposed. No one's supposed to be anything other than who they want to be, right? And so if today I'm all about body positivity and tomorrow, actually I've said that I, you know, I fasted between 6 p.m. And, and 12, what's that got to do with, with anyone else? Because it's what I'm doing for me. Mm-hmm. What I think we need to be careful of is people put themselves in a position of being a guru or, and that's when it all becomes a bit murky. Um, and so I don't think back in the day, you know, Puff Daddy, the people that I looked up to, they didn't put themselves in a position of being a guru. They were who they were. And if you chose right. to follow them or dance to the music, that was up absolutely for you. But no, they, no one was ever trying to proclaim to be perfect. And I like that about the movement. I like that about hip hop it's never about perfection. It's always about experimentation and you take it or leave it sort of thing. Really freeing, isn't it? Okay. So in my research for this podcast, I heard that you got a hundred thousand pound loan from the bank to start Morgan. Is that right? Yeah. And you were 21? 20. right? Got it. And I opened Morgan before my 21st birthday. Yeah. So going to the bank, I remember I went to he was called Simon Bailey, my bank manager, when I was 23. And I asked him for six grand and that felt like a big deal. (laughs) So so talk me through that a little bit again, because I think that these early experiences do stay with us um, and they can form our, uh, you know, our mindset for going into our future. So talk me through yeah, sure. I'm going to open a Morgan. Um, £100,000. Thank you very much. I'm going to go for it. Um, did you feel any fear? Did you feel any sense of risk? Or were you just like, this is happening, let's go? This is happening, let's go. And I, I don't, I can't explain it now, but that figure never felt like a huge amount of money to me. Okay. And it's not because I came from money, but I, I think I'm very practical once I set my mind to something. And so to get to the figure of a hundred thousand pounds, I did a cash flow. So you know, work through what do I need to secure the the lease? What do I need to secure stock? What do I need to pay um, payroll for the first six months? And the figure sort of rounded out at a hundred grand. So I was like, well, that's what I need. And there was there was no there was no space for doubt or questioning. It was this just is. And I think there's a lot there for people building businesses now when you're in it and you're hungry and you want it things just are what they are and you either decide to get on that train and keep it moving or you let the doubt creep in and that's when it's likely that you'll talk yourself out of it or you speak to friends or family who don't get it or for who for whom it might be a big number or a big moment and they talk you out of it and I'm so blessed that I didn't have anyone that said that's a bad idea. Like none of my friends at uni were ever like, don't do that. Just come to the bar and drink. They were like, cool, we're going to get cool Morgan clothes. <laughs> um, Where did you learn to do a cash flow forecast? Well, it helps that I was at uni at the same time. So I just enrolled in accounting and finance. Right. Um, I didn't pass. 
that's by the by um I I so I everything I needed to build the business plan I basically enrolled in that module and Lancaster is an amazing university I don't know if it still works in this way but it was modular so in your first year you took any three subjects and then you sort of refined each year but you could pull modules from any department right so I did a module in franchising I did a module in accounting and finance to build the cash flow I also used like um there were sort of on QuickBooks they had sort of templates that you could build I just used templates I just pulled whatever I could the bank used to give you um a cd-rom with sort of information that you could complete as well so I just I brought it all together I think I used well I submitted my business plan as my dissertation so I knew that the numbers needed to make sense to at least pass my degree so even if I didn't get the Morgan off the ground there was still value in the work that I was creating um Mm -hmm. and that's another thing that I've always had I sweat the asset if I'm doing one thing then that one thing needs to have like five bits of value for me to do it sweat the asset I say it to my team all the time how how can we sweat this one opportunity so that there there's a ripple Mm -hmm. effect and at uni that was if I'm going to do a dissertation then it might as well be be for a real business equally if I'm doing some work for a real business then I might as well use it to pass my degree as opposed to some people would have done a plan for the business still tried to do a separate dissertation and taken modules that had nothing to do with the business they were building like why would you do that well yes why would you do that (laughs) the person that's like at the pub like I don't know (laughs) (laughs) um so you're at Morgan you've got a hundred thousand pounds and tell me what's next what happened next for you um, so got the money, the shop fit was happening. So my dad was driving up doing the shop fit. The Morgan shop fit was very specific. It was very expensive, but I was in my element. And I remember I used the summer to be sort of backwards and forwards from London, um, buying stock. And that for me, it was glorious. You go to the showroom, see all of the, all, all products. And then I really had to get my mind into what does the Lancaster woman want? Um, And I just, it opened up so much for me in terms of thinking about customers, thinking about the experience and really realizing that it was my shop. You know, every decision I made impacted how successful we were going to be. And so we opened in September, literally a couple of days before my 21st birthday. And it was amazing. You know, the tills were working, everything was working. Um, And so from that point onwards it once I delivered that milestone I just went back to normal so I went back to my lectures as normal and then I popped to the shop I never ran the store so I had a team uh, a day day-to-day manager and then part-time staff and I just sort of did my thing working in the shop was it profitable it, it was so it worked the challenge was um 18 months on and at this point I'd moved back to London the franchisor went into administration. And so as a franchisee, I wasn't allowed to operate. Now I had money in the bank and this was another lesson learned. Cash flow is queen. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it then. And I used all of my working capital to rebrand my way out of the Morgan contract. And for people that saw the store as a Morgan on a Monday and on the Friday saw, I named it um, DM as in Carpe DM. They saw DM, they were a bit like, where's Morgan gone? And I couldn't sell any of the Morgan stock. So I had to use all of the cash to get rid of all of the red paint because Morgan was a very strong red color. 
I had right. to put all of the stock in um, in in the loft of, of the shop and buy new stock. And the money disappeared and I couldn't pay staff. And it was that scenario of, well, we're not generating enough revenue to keep this thing going. And that okay. for me was a really, it felt very personal, very public, very hard. But I learned so much through that. And I took on most of the debt myself. So I had about 50K that I had to pay off between mm-hmm. sort of my early 20s and 30. And it, it took me seven years to pay it off, but I paid it off. Okay. Let me just process this. Okay. You're running DM, brilliant name, but you're in debt and you're going, okay, this situation has happened. Wouldn't have chosen it, but this has happened. So I need to deal with it. Talk to me about what came after that. So where did you go after DM? So I was already working in London at the time for Enterprise UK, which is where we sort of possibly would have okay. met. Um, okay. slightly later because Virgin Media Pioneers was slightly later, but I, I was working in London. I was living at home, um, had the shop in Lancaster, sort of closed it down. And at that point I did what was, called, I think it's still called a CVA. So basically I went through an insolvency process and the options for me at the time were bankruptcy or insolvency. Mm-hmm. And the person I had to borrow the money to do it because I didn't have any money. Um, and the, the accountant said to me, you know, you can make yourself bankrupt. You're young enough that it will be off your file. And there was something in my mind that said, I don't want to do that. A, because of what bankruptcy does to your, your record and the things you can't do. And I, in my head, I think I maybe want to be a lawyer. I, was like, I can't be a lawyer or a magistrate if I've been made bankrupt. So I'm not going to do it. I'll pay it off. Um, I didn't pay off every, every single invoice, but the majority of the debt that I, I had, I did pay off. You know, what's equally hard is being a student with student loans and also student overdrafts. I had all of that debt too. So I had to bring it all together um, and get really smart about money. But I appreciate that period so much because now I'm really good with money. I know where my money is. I save, I invest. um, And it's because of that period of having over 50K that I had to, I was working three jobs just to be able to live and pay down the debt. I can relate to that because with seen on screen, so um, for our Queens listening, the technicalities of it, so seen on screen and School of SOS are two separate companies. And I can relate. I poured everything into seen on screen without any business experience. And I didn't know how to do cash flow forecasts didn't do an accountancy module. (laughs) 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 And um, when I went to the bank, I still have the business plan, but I just created like a table of on um, like word and did numbers on the back of an envelope with a calculator and just put the numbers into the table. Um, And he looked at me like, "You, you did what? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, babes, that's what I did. Like I figured my numbers out. So let's go. (laughs) Um, And it, it's, it got really, really hard with seen on screen because there was, we would make money, but the costs were just as much as the revenue coming in. So I had to learn the hard way and get really good at money and teach myself how to do cash flow forecasts and teach myself how to model businesses as a result of the pain of in effect, I guess, failure in a way, because it's yeah it is of of going wrong you're not taught so in in maths at school at what point are we ever presented with a cash flow just just even for life 
you know, you get X amount of pocket money or you get a Saturday job and you earn this much and your bus fare might be it's just basic stuff. At no point did we ever just learn money in, money out. Never. Why? Like, would we know it? What yeah, exactly why? I mean, it should it should be the only thing you really that mortgages, interest rates, you know, basic life stuff, but we don't learn any of that. I don't even, I don't even remember what we, we learned. It's, it's, it's crazy, but I think it's a really important lesson because I think if any of our queens listening to this have had any financial struggles themselves, I don't know anyone that hasn't unless like their parents literally just did it all for them. You know, you're not alone if you are experiencing, you know, you've taken a risk and for whatever reason, it hasn't gone to plan. Um, there's a real mindset choice. Would you agree with me, Natalie, that you can go, this can either make me or break me and I'm, let's, let's get on the make and it's going to make me. Would you, do you agree? Absolutely. In terms of mindset choice. So a, how you feel about money, how does money make you feel? So you need to decide in that moment to hopefully make it a positive feeling. How does the failure, the failure connected to that losing money, how does that make you feel? And, but you know, what choices are you going to make that make it better? That means you do things differently next time. How do you upskill yourself? How do you face into the debt? Because part of the problem sometimes is that people don't look at the debt or look at the numbers. I've, absolutely, it's too scary to look at. And yeah. it gets, but it gets worse mm-hmm. as soon as you own it. And for me, I put all of my debt in on paper, mm-hmm. so I can see the amount. And I said, I'm going to dedicate this much to paying it off every single month. And even if that meant paying off drips and drabs. I didn't do like a consolidation. It was, it was literally 50 pounds here and 25 pounds here. It was that piecemeal, but I did it. And you, I saw the amount going down and I calculated, I was trying to basically meet another birthday. I wanted to be debt-free by the time I was 30. Mm-hmm. And so I did everything I could to meet that goal. And so facing into it and making it a positive thing, because I knew that there was a big celebration coming at the point of being debt-free. And I was connected to the feeling, the lightness of being debt-free after living with so much debt. And because it was all of my life debt, student loans, life loans, the business stuff, it really was a moment of going every single penny that goes into my bank account next month is mine right yes and seeing the end goal um I guess I've got two questions for you because I want to keep going down your career story so two two lanes to this question the first lane is uh what was the the next step after that and also what was your support network going into the next I guess it would be seven years were you 23 when Morgan closed or DM closed yeah thereabouts so 23, so you've got seven years to go from in debt to debt-free. You're making all these mindset choices, which are beyond your years, I would say. Um, what came next and what was your support network like and how has your support network developed? So f- for me, to the point of sweat the asset, there was no next. I was always doing five things at the same time. <laughs> so it was not really next. It was what else is running in tandem that I maybe sidestep into and further and then sidestep into something else and further. Um, and so at the time, so Morgan was, was, was closing, but I was in a job where it was my job to speak to other students about starting their own business. So I was in the world of enterprise promotion. So I could publicly tell my story 
and get paid for it and then create policies to enable change to happen. So I specifically remember, and I'm giving myself the credit for this, I said at a meeting that young people should be given the option of using their student loan to start a business instead of going to university. Track forward to the student loans company. Wow. Model influencing startup loans. That's huge. I'm taking a lot of credit. You take that credit. Okay. Um, And so I was in the policy space, influencing green papers, influencing white papers. Um, What's a green paper and a white paper? The green papers and white papers are the sort of the documents that go into public policy making. So organizations create these documents and then influence specific government departments or ministers, and then it becomes policy ultimately. Um, And so I was influencing the enterprise agenda and that was my my job. So I was at Enterprise UK, but I had lots of side hustles and I'd already started sitting on boards. So it didn't feel like I was losing something and then I had to figure out what's next. I just continued living the other parts of of my life. Tell us Um, about the boards that you're that you've started to sit on so can you explain what a board is just in case any of our queens are like you did what um (laughs) and how does one sit on a board and get themselves to that situation because that's there's a lot of power sitting on a board that's where the really important decisions are made so can you explain a bit more about what they are and the boards that you sat on and or sit on now and how you get there yeah and i'll answer your um people around me question as well oh yeah so A board ultimately is a group of people that make strategic decisions about an organization or a business or another group of people. I mean, it takes lots of of forms. Um, Generally, there is a chair of the board and then in a charity, there are either trustees or within a business, there are non-executive directors. And for the most part, I think one of the, the... not great things is most people don't know who's on the board of organizations. We know there might be a chief exec, but do you know that there's a board and a chair above the chief exec ultimately setting the strategy? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I figured this out again. I, 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 I can't actually remember how I came across the idea of wanting to be a non-exec or wanting to sit on a board or this influencing entity Um, But the first role I saw that I applied for was for the British Youth Council, which still exists. And I applied for the role because it was vice chair campaigns and communications and going back to the fact that I wanted to go to the Brit school and I started off doing a media degree. I'm, I'm a comms girl. I like comms. I like campaigns. And it felt like a great way to do something that I wasn't necessarily doing all the time in my day job at Enterprise Mm -hmm. UK. Um, and I liked the leadership aspect of it because I wasn't just a normal trustee. I also then had some influence over a, an, a, an agenda. And so I applied. I had to um, attend an annual general meeting, so an AGM, in front of all of the members of the British Youth Council and ultimately pitch myself to be nominated. And I didn't know I had to do that um, because I didn't read all of the information. But anyway, I'm, I'm good off the cuff. And so I did it and I joined and that set up a whole other life pathway of me being a public servant. And so over the years, I've sat on over 10 boards. Some of them are public appointments. A public appointment is when you've either been appointed by the Queen, the Prime Minister or the Secretary of State to a role. 
Um, How do they know about you, Natalie? How does one get on the radar of the Queen, the Prime, Prime Minister or the Secretary of State? Well, so you apply for the role and okay. I don't know. I, so again, at the time, and this is a learning, I, I, you don't always know that the role is being signed off or has to be approved or ratified by someone so senior. But there are lots of roles that you, know, you can only officially be appointed to that role if it's been stamped by the Secretary of State or the PM or, or the Queen um, or the Mayor, depending on, on the role. And there are others in charitable organisations um, when you are just, you're appointed by the chair. So I've had a mix, but I always do things that come back to entrepreneurship, that come back to young people, that can come back to making a difference for, for others. Um, and I have a lot of fun thinking in that strategic way. Then to your question mm -hmm. around support networks, one of the reasons I enjoy being on a board personally is because I get to be around lots of people that I wouldn't necessarily meet in my day-to-day -day working life. And they have become part of my support network. But growing up, it was the girls. So the girls that I went to school with, the girls that I went to university with, a lot of them are still around. We were always encouraging of each other's pursuits and ambition and being badass. And I think you cannot underestimate the importance of having the right, the right sort of mindset around you because mm -hmm. the wrong mindset means that you put limits on yourself based on the limitations they put on themselves because they can't encourage you beyond what they could encourage themselves to do. How do you deal with that? Because I can very much relate to that in my own life. So I'm the same. My support network has always been my girls that I trained with. So I went to a college called um, Tring, Arts Educational Tring Park. And there's five of us who are just, we're basically sisters, sisters from another mister, like spirit sisters. And I took it for granted because I didn't know any different, you know, sky's the limit, we're all ambitious, go for it. And then I've experienced in family that you can love someone and there can be so much love, but they can put their ceiling onto you, especially when you're in like an in-family environment and you want a sense of belonging, but it feels wrong at the same time. So how would you advise anyone listening this to find their tribe if they don't necessarily, as much as they love their family or they love where they've come from, they don't necessarily feel like they fit or their aspirations, their dreams, their ambitions fit? So I say often, you can love people and leave them behind. It's okay. It's not okay to leave yourself behind. And it's a decision I made for me. It's not okay to leave behind everything that I want to be and achieve because the people that I love can't see it. And like I said, I've been very blessed in that I've always had people around me that can see it and haven't stood in, in my way. Um, I, th I think the challenge lots of people face, and it's a human instinct, is that we look for approval. And what I haven't shared is that I have, I, I'm an introvert. So I process things internally within myself before I externalize them. For people that look to external sources to then internalize what they're going to do, it's slightly mm -hmm. harder. And I have a high sense of agency. So agency is a term that um, focuses on how you process and how much control you think you have over a scenario or a situation. And I have a high sense of agency. Yes, cultivated through being nurtured into having a high sense of agency, but I do. And so what it means is that when I decide I want to do something, 
or decide I want to make something happen. I don't need lots of people to say that's a really good idea, or I don't need lots of people to to sound out to get to my own place of decision making. Mm-hmm. I make the decision for my myself first, and then then I articulate it. So if you're the opposite way, and you're someone that needs to speak to lots of people to mediate what you think, what you need to get really good at is hearing when people put their own judgment on the advice they're giving you. Mm -hmm. So you know that they're not actually giving you advice based on what they think you should do. They're giving you advice based on what they would do and what they think they are capable of. And once you start to distinguish that, it makes it easier to either discount their advice or hear the good bits and then still be able to make your own decision. That's really deep and really wise. Thanks, Ben. That's incredible advice. And it makes you, if anyone, I know for me personally, I can feel a lot of anger towards any, it's like a trigger for me. Mm -hmm. Someone says, you can't in any way shape or form I just see red so I just normally just go really really quiet because I think don't say something that is gonna like offend someone or upset them but I think if you can separate what any limitations someone's putting on you with actually it's just in effect advice they're giving themselves or what they think they're capable of and it's not you and you can separate and it makes them a lot more human and it makes you a lot uh, easier to deal with personally so I think that's incredible advice um one thing i wanted to touch on before we get into your current role which i think is fascinating if you don't mind talking about it is your role and your work with the royal foundation mm-hmm. i think purely because um so the royal foundation for any of our queens listening is the it was originally the fab four prince harry and Meghan markle and then the duchess and duke of cambridge and now it's just the duke and duchess of cambridge um, that's interesting because they, I mean, they've got some um, pressure on their shoulders, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like working in such a high-profile organisation and why did you want to work there? So I actually wanted to work there because of the CEO. Um, so Lorraine Hegacy was the CEO. And for anyone that doesn't know, Lorraine Hegacy is badass. She was the first female controller of BBC One. Um and she then went on to um, talk back Thames and basically like TV goddess. And so in my early 20s, I was pivoting who I was looking at in terms of role models and looking at, at other CEOs. And she was one of the, the women that I found. And I sent her flowers and asked her to be my mentor. And she responded and said she didn't have time, but you know, she wished me well. And I was like, one day I'm going to work with you or know you. Um, and when I saw the role come up, yes, it, it was about the impact and the strategy around making a difference together and all of the things that I thought I could do. And because I had been running my own agency, really trying to create significant change, I knew I wanted to be in a role where there was big, meaty impact. And so to see Lorraine as CEO, I was like, right, I have to apply for this role. The role was director of insight and innovation. Innovation is one of the things that I thrive on in terms of connecting dots between seemingly um, unconnected things and insights. I'm a very curious person. It was what I was doing within a very big company. So it it ticked lots of boxes there. Um, Being in an organization where there is a lot of um, external focus on, on what you do, it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. There was a lot of learning for me in a different way to some of my boards, which are equally as high profile, 
but it, it was mm-hmm. a different source of learning because you realize that um, there's so much nuance that gets lost once something is reported or once uh, a project is made public and you don't have the liberty to go, okay, but you reported that one thing, but there are five other really important things that if you had said, it would give it more context or actually that's not what we're trying to do or not what we're trying to achieve. And so it, it gave me a, 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 a different lens to media doing things that are high, publicly high profile, doing working in a space um, with people that have a, a, an influence over society and, and a responsibility that's very different to celebrity and very different to being the sort of role model that I described with the, with the Puff Daddy, where actually there is a weight of responsibility. It was really eye-opening mm. for me. And I'm glad I got to do it because it's teed me up for lots of the things that I'm doing now at Baloo. So talk to me about Baloo. Because again, like for those of you, if you might not necessarily be familiar with the word blue, if you see a picture of the blue bottle, yep. it's everywhere. Like it's a huge role. Um, can you tell us all about blue? Because it's an amazing company um, and being CEO of such a, and coming out of COVID as well. I, I know that you have a whole, you know, how you like rallied the team. Can you tell us about your blue story, please? Yeah, so Blue, a brand I'd known since the very beginning. So Reed Paget, the original founder, I knew him. Um, and serendipitously, it's it's amazing how it rolled back into my life. So Blue is a, a drinks business. People will know us for our mineral water. So if you go to a restaurant, you, you pop into Gales, um, you grab a bottle from Caliches, you'll see the Blue brand. And we started life off as, as mineral water. We moved into filtration. So recognizing the shift to people having more refills, um, wanting less on the go packaging, um, refillable filtered water became another part of the business. And then uh, in April, we launched tonics and mixes. And the core of Baloo is that there is a better way to do business. We can do well and do good. And our mission is to change the way the world sees water. And we do that by giving all of our profits mm. to WaterAid. So for the last couple of years, it's been over a million pounds. I took over during COVID. That meant profits absolutely flatlined because our customer is the hospitality industry. But we still managed to, to get WaterAid at least a hundred thousand pounds. And we're committed to do that wow. um, until we get back to a place of profitability. But it means that you know, as a business, I run a commercial business. Going back to what I was saying before, I'm a retail girl. I like, I like the hustle of, of business. I really do. But what I love even more is that the effort and time that I put in, that the team puts in, is making a difference to someone else's life because they don't have access to clean water. They don't have access to quality sanitation or good hygiene. And for every sale that we make, infrastructure is then being applied in another part of the world to give that to people and closer to home from an environmental perspective you know waste is a massive issue people not recycling or not having recyclable materials is a massive issue when we look at pollution and climate action and so to know that we are pushing the boundaries on innovation to turn waste material into something valuable so that it can be made into more bottles or into new refills um, that shows that businesses don't just produce things push it out 
and sort of wash their hands of it, actually we can recall all of the stuff that we're putting out and reuse it again and become regenerative right. businesses and be businesses that ultimately do more for society than we, than, than we take. Where did your ambition for this start? Because I, I notice it, I spend so much time in female founder networks, which are all digital now. Um, but I recently joined one specific network, which was called Female Founder Office Hours. And there were 250 founders on there um, as a way to get rid of the need of warm introductions talking to big institutional investors. And on one of the Slack channels, it was called Intros. And these 250 founders all introduced themselves and their businesses. And there's so many women creating businesses that, yes, make money, but also a profit for impact and purpose, which I think is really exciting about um, female leaders as well. Where does your passion, because it's such a theme in your career that you do all of these incredibly impressive things, but there's always a so what to it of like, and what impact is this making? Where does that come from? Like, why not just go down the, the corporate route um, of, and bonuses and, uh, you know, going down that route? Why the social impact route? So do you know what? I just, I find the money, making money for money's sake, really boring. Just really boring. I mean, there's only so many shoes, bags, thinking about billionaires, there's only so many yachts you can have before it becomes really boring. You can never get bored of making a difference. You can never get bored right. of seeing a smile on someone's face. And I, you know, I'm just sit it down to something really basic. If you bought a coffee for the person behind you in the line, like the amazement on their face and the fact that they'll remember it for the end of the day, you, can, you cannot get bored of that feeling. It's just impossible. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there's a side of me, the selfish, altruist side that gets a kick out of knowing that my life has meant something to someone and I could help. Um, but there's also that if, if you can, then you must. Why, why would you not want to help? I just, I, I can't connect with that. And I think it does come from the way I was raised. Um, you know, mm -hmm. my grandmas were both women that they fostered kids. They were childminders. They, they were really active within their communities. Um, the same with my granddad. It's just a thing of why? why, why would you see someone go without when there is something that you can do, whether that's financially or with time or with words or with kindness to make their day better and to lift them up? Like, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror if I, if I didn't do that. I don't think any of my ancestors would be particularly happy with the life that I'd chosen if it was just right. about money. Like, I really believe that. Okay. Do you think, how much, because I have a theory, I bounce my theory off of you. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the world is very out of balance currently and has always been really. Um, and as a woman, I walk around the streets of London. It's one of my favorite pastimes, just walking through London. And I got to an age, maybe like 28, 29, where I realized that all the statues were statues of men mm. um, and the positions of white men. I'm married to a white man. I'm the daughter of a white man, like nothing against white men, but this way out of balance. Mm. So going back to my point of my theory is that I really believe that when we get a 50-50 balance of equality and we get as many women around the table as men, we get as many black women around the table as white women, as many um, Asian, you know, from all 
all ethnicities, all backgrounds. I really think that's going to, I feel like Michael Jackson heal the world and make it a better place. But I, you know, I really, I really believe that. Um, do you think this more like altruistic way of viewing business is feminine or would you think it was like, a, it would be wrong to call it feminine? Cause I believe it is. So what I don't want to do is play a definition game. Cause there's always nuance to this. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I would say deep down, do I believe it's a feminine quality? And I don't connect feminine with woman, by the way. It, it's, um, if, if you take it right oh, back to its core, I, I do believe the, the ability to, or the desire to nurture, the desire to care, the desire to connect is, for me, sits within feminine qualities that men, women, and non-binary people have. We all have it. Are we tapped into it? No. And so my challenge to you when you were talking about, you know, making sure that everyone's sitting around the table, only for me, if they are tapped into wanting to help, because there are women around the table that don't want to help and definitely have not looked behind them to bring other women, people of color, non-binary people through people with disabilities not on their radar they absolutely don't care but there have been white men who have and I I said this on on a podcast before I don't want to live in a world where white men feel the need to apologize for themselves right because there are unintended consequences of that in that you are saying that it's I don't think we should make anyone feel bad about who they are that's not equity no one should have to make themselves feel small for me to have more space. Yes. Get out of the way if you are a barrier, but don't make yourself feel small. And so I get uneasy. I spend time, you know, lots of white men feel the need to apologize for themselves. I'm like, stop it. I don't need you to be small for me to be big. Did you not read my CV? Right. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Let's just get down to business. And I do think it's that, you know, there are lots of men, non-binary people, women that need to nurture. And this is, I think, the shift we've had over the last year, their ability to care. And now more people care. And now more people feel that they can be kind and it's not a weakness. And I actually still like the word nice. I know there's, again, you know, now we can debate everything. People are debating, is it kind or is it nice? There's nothing wrong with being nice. I like the word nice. People are connected into that. And I think that's where we'll start to see the shift and change. But for me, anyone that isn't connected into that, and if you put it in the category of the feminine, then it, to me, it doesn't matter what vessel you present as a human, you're an a-hole and I don't like you very much. Right. I could not agree more. And you've just done that so eloquently. I completely agree. I've experienced women who have completely tapped out of their femininity. I've experienced it from older women who I think have came up through the maybe the late 80s, the 90s and almost disowned their femininity because they associated it with it's holding me back. Mm. Um, I, that, I think what you just said is incredibly powerful um, and I can completely relate to it. That's such an insight, Natalie, I, I think. But it's, it's a, a, because we've got the space to have the conversation, right? On mm-hmm. Twitter, where you've got a few characters, there's no space for that debate. On Instagram, there isn't really space for that debate either because people only hear what they want to hear. And 
I, I, what mm. I look forward to is when we can meet in person again and start to have conversations about the new world that we're in and how we want to show up in the world and, and what really does move us to a place of absolute equity, absolute equality, absolute mm. appreciation of diversity and creating inclusive workplaces, inclusive environments. It's when we dig into the nuance of who we are as people and that conversation is not about telling someone else to shut up. That conversation is not about telling someone else yeah. to be small or to apologize for themselves. Uh, I don't even think it's about ripping down statues. Create space for more. There is always space for more. And then turn what's there into a reminder of why you don't repeat those patterns. But if you remove something, you create space for history to repeat itself as opposed to space for a conversation and a dialogue. Right. I love hearing you say that, Natalie, because I think so many people are trying to, myself included, are trying to navigate this new world. Um, this, I, it sounds so silly to have this conversation, but I'm interested to know what you think. As a, as a white woman, I almost want to be like, I, I don't know how to operate a white woman because I want to understand and create not create space for black women because no one needs anyone to create space for but I, I want to be sensitive and I want to learn um, but equally I've been on the receiving end of people using it as an opportunity to uh, try and come for my business and, and lie about me um, because of that finite thinking it's you know, if and it comes back down to the same thing. If you're small, I'm big. If I'm big, you're small. So I think to hear you as such an empowered, powerful black woman to say that, I think is is really um, game changing. And I think for me personally, I get all the alignment pings that that's the way forward. Um, and that's such a huge sense of leadership that that you have. You know how do we navigate this new world that we're in in a kind way that ultimately the goal is equality? I do think it comes down to both parties or everyone involved in the conversation realising that there is enough. Right. And I, when you think about capitalism, any, any structure, you know, the structure we go through at school, someone has to win. Someone's at the top. And so if someone's at the top, it means there's someone that's second and then you're at the bottom. And so it isn't a case of we can all be first. And don't get me wrong, I, I believe in competition. I believe in wanting to strive for greatness, but we, we assume that there is a pie. Mm -hmm. And if someone has a bit of that pie, there's just less for me. Whereas in my mind, I'm like, well, I have a pie and you have a pie and you have a pie and we all have a pie and maybe we swap pies and maybe today it's just and so I, I'm not trying to look at what someone else has got I'm not trying to look into someone else's lane I don't I don't care about anyone else's lane I, I, I want to help if I can you move through your lane um, but I don't need to be in it and therefore I'm not threatened by what you've got and I I you know, I, I say in podcasts, for, you know, for a long time being an entrepreneur, I didn't acknowledge being a woman or, or being a black woman. That's not to say I didn't mm -hmm. see it, mm -hmm. but I didn't acknowledge it because I saw my lane and I didn't stop to look at whether or not 
someone wasn't letting me get through or, or do something. And I didn't stop to acknowledge if it was a man or, or a white man because I didn't care. My path was my path and I was going to go over it, under it, through it mm-hmm. to get to where I, I needed to be. And that, I think, has given me the insight to say what I just said, said and, and really, really believe it. I don't try and take from someone else's pox. It's not mine. What I have and what because I need. And you don't need to. No. But, yeah, and I think the the insight that I get from you and I think what's so special about you especially from I've taught 10,000 women over my over my time 10,000 women you learn a lot from teaching 10,000 women how to dance um it's a very vulnerable space um and what I learned in my like eureka moment in my career kind of figuring it out for yourself because no one teaches you this at school either is that the one thing that those 10,000 women had in common was a belief and feeling that at some point in some area of their life that they're not enough. Mm-hmm. So to solve that, to solve women's profound conditioned fear that they're not enough became my like raison d'etre. Cause I was like, I've got it. I've got the solution. I know what to do. I'll teach them to dance and then they'll realize on the dance floor they're enough and then they can go out into the world and it's transferable skill. Mm-hmm. So that sense, that deep rooted sense that you have, that you believe that you're enough, having such a huge positive impact on the world through what you're doing every day. It's really inspiring. Oh, thanks lady. I mean, don't be, it's not, it's not the world. It's, just, it's my little corner. It's your corner of the world. But I think imagine if everyone's corner was as deep rooted, if everyone could have that sense of worth that you have in their own corner, how much more open, how much more infinite we could all or be that's the world I want to that's the world I want to live in and that's the world I want to build I agree with you actually and I think it's one of the reasons that we did resonate and connect because everyone think back to a moment when you've been on the dance floor and your favorite songs on and you're just your body's just moving like that feeling of freedom euphoria the love you feel for yourself and your body because it's doing Mm -hmm. these moves and you can't see yourself, right? So you, but you know, you're loving whatever is being projected out of your body. Like that feeling, having that every day. Oh, amazing. Literally being like cheered on yeah. by all of these queens who have your back. And, it, and just because you're killing it on the dance floor doesn't mean that they're not, yeah. you know, just cheering each other on. Um, and I think that our, when we find our tribes, like I very much see you as your part of my tribe, Natalie. Like even if we don't talk for three or four years, like we we up and it's just immediate. Like well, there's so much to talk about and say, and uh, just like and I, I had a great um, quote recently by Simon Sinek, who I love, um, and he was talking to Brene Brown on a podcast, and he called her teammate, and he was like someone that you don't necessarily need to have even met before you don't need to spend that much time with but there's an instant recognition when you meet a fellow teammate who's they share a path or a mission a cause when you meet a fellow teammate you know and you connect and I feel like on our mission to empower our mission on equality I feel like we're teammates in that I absolutely wholeheartedly agree and I realize I didn't answer a specific part of your question about what can you uniquely do as a white woman and I would say it's what you're doing now it's creating spaces to have conversations and authentically have those conversations and listen because I believe the behavior that creates is 
A, all of the environments around you are inclusive, that when you're out and about and you're eating, drinking, spending your money, you're thinking about, am I spreading this wealth across lots of different businesses um, or just ones run by people that look like me? It, it starts to just permeate in a way that doesn't, you don't have to try anymore. And I think that's mm. my hope. I don't want anyone to always be living in an otherness or thinking or, or, or having to second guess every single moment. It's just do the thing that you love and it will authentically just start to switch and change and it will just be better. Idealistic, but I do believe it. I believe it too. Idealistic, but I'm going for the idealism. <laughs> because we're on a mission and if we doesn't if we get no we just go around it over it under it to the side <laughs> so we're going to move to our quick fire questions that I really enjoy so I'm just going to get them out so I think I might know the answer to this having had this interview but what's your favorite music video of all time <laughs> no how dare you ask that <laughs> anything by Aaliyah one in a million probably Okay. Aaliyah's an artist that you put on and the music goes into your ears and you just immediately, yeah. something happens. Yeah. Um, who's your all-time favourite Shiro? So I'm not going to pick anyone and that it goes back to what I said about role models. Mm-hmm. Um, but Shiro, people that I love, Rihanna, she just is right. who she is. And if you like her, you like her. And she makes mistakes and she owns up and she keeps it moving. But she's never professed to be a guru or um, doesn't lure people to worship false deities. Um, and obviously Michelle Obama. Obviously. Obviously. Um, can you describe a full circle moment where you're, you lived something that you dreamed of doing? Uh, moving to Hove because I now live by the sea and it's been a lifelong dream yeah is it really oh congratulations you live by the sea by the sea well this follows nicely into the next question what's your favorite way to relax (sighs) anything looking at the sea any sort of beverage looking at the sea tea coffee (laughs) wine champagne water looking at the sea it's just yeah it's amazing okay. it's amazing you're very I feel like water is connected to your soul yeah in some way yeah um if someone or situation tells you that you can't mm-hmm. what's your next action I think we maybe covered this a little bit I probably didn't hear it now in my life like I don't I just don't didn't hear it it just bounced off Literally just want to be best friends with you, Natalie, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, the most empowering piece of advice you've ever received. Um, so I share this one often. Uh, it's a framework from Claw Social Leadership and it's know yourself, be yourself, look after yourself. It's a leadership right. framework. Know yourself, be yourself, look after yourself. Yeah. Um, Last, last question. What's next for you? Living my life like every day is a holiday. Can we just talk about that really quick? Because there's a misconception, I think, that being a CEO, you can't live like that. 
you can't have both. So talk to me a little bit about that because I think being a CEO and what's next, living my life like it's a holiday, I think I've, I'm like, I want to sign up to it. Tell me more because you get so much done as well. So it, it's a lie. When you create the right environment all around, every day should feel light. Every day should feel like that first, second, third day of your holiday. And it's, it, it, it actually started, um, I was on a train on the, on the Heathrow Express and I bumped into Gabby Carhain and he said, he's, you know, I was like, I just need to get on this holiday because I just need to relax. And he was like, you don't sound like you're escaping to somewhere. You sound like you're running from something. And I realized that I was running from the busyness of my life to these moments of relaxing when what I should be doing is creating that life in the life that I actually live every single day. And so what I do now is I have a, a job that I absolutely adore and love. And I am in as much control as I possibly can be over how I spend my time and what I do. And I get to give back. I live in a place that feels like a holiday. I, I moved to the sea so that I can see what I see when I go on holiday. I moved to a place where I can eat healthy food and I see greenery and I have friends and people around me that only bring positive vibes, like two seconds of bad vibes. And like me and the girls, like that person is not, not in this space or place. Mm -hmm. um, and that includes family as well. Like I, I don't take on other people's troubles or burdens just because it's, it's not my life. You can help people, but you cannot live someone's life for them. And so I have a life now that really does feel like the first, second, third days of holiday. Yes, it can be hard. And I, you know, I, there are still things that I need to do, but I don't wake up with any feeling other than contentment, which is in a lifelong journey. <laughs> yeah, I, I thank, thank you so, so much for sharing your story your perspective, the way that you view the world. And I can't wait for all of our queens to hear it. Um, I'm so inspired by everything that you've said and you've um, made me see things in a way that I think leveled me up a bit too, in terms of um, the, the femininity thing, I think really stood out to me because I, I really heard what you said there, especially as someone that's pushing women's equality as much as I, I humanly can. Um, I think that that's a much more nuanced and uh, accurate, represent honest representation of what's actually happening. And I, I really, um, that really resonated with me. So a huge, huge thank you. Um, thank you, Natalie. Thank you. Thanks for having me.